Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's become one of the most talked-about interviews of our time. The interview in which Meghan and Harry told the world their side of the story. But we never left. <laughs> we never left the family, and we only wanted to have the same type of role that exists, right? There's senior members of the family, and then there are non-senior members. Just days before the interview aired, bullying allegations exposed by the Times cast the Duchess of Sussex in a different light. There are members of the royal family who might have occasionally behaved robustly with staff, yeah. Maybe we might have had tempers lost, yes. But that's different from being a bullying boss. After a week of jaw-dropping revelations, where does it leave the royal family? This is devastating for the royal family, uh, who have spent so long trying to cultivate modern images. And then you get this, which literally blows the whole thing right out of the water. The overarching picture painted by the first black member of the royal family is of an institution awkwardly out of touch with modern attitudes. I think that the reaction overall has been that this does not look great for the British royal family. One network repeatedly calling this kryptonite for them. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Meghan and Harry versus The Firm. When Oprah Winfrey, the doyen of American daytime TV, first approached Meghan Markle for an interview just before the royal wedding, the palace, we're told, intervened. Three years on, having moved continents and left their royal duties behind, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex finally sat down with Oprah in their back garden in California, complete with a chicken coop, and they talked. Over the course of a two-hour special, the startling, bombshell revelations fell like confetti at the end of a victory lap. I mean, that's the sad irony of the last four years, as I've advocated for so long for women to use their voice. And then I was silent. Um, were you silent or were you silenced? The latter. Meghan had felt gagged, and her son Archie was being denied many of the benefits of being a royal. He won't be given security. He's not going to be given a title. 
And there was worse. And also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. And the rift between the royals was wider than we'd realized. So you just said that your dad stopped taking your calls. Why did he stop taking your calls? Because I took matters in, by that point, I took matters into my own hands. It was like, I need to do this for my family. The world is still reeling. So far, the interview has led to a national debate about race, calls for Australia to become a republic, and the controversial host, Piers Morgan, to resign from his breakfast TV show after a record number of complaints. Whilst the dust refuses to settle, what should we make of it all? We asked our man in the know. I'm Valentine Lowe. I write about the royal family for The Times. Valentine has had a front-row seat on royal affairs for more than a decade. And when the interview aired, of course, he was watching. Well, my first reaction was, this is much worse than anyone has been expecting. I mean, we knew we knew from those early clips when she talked about the palace perpetuating falsehoods that it was going to be pretty punchy stuff. But what happened was jaw-dropping, and it will be very damaging for the royal family. I mean, tell me about that. What were the moments that really stood out to you that made you stop and think, there's no going back from this? I think there were two key moments. One is Mm. her describing the fact that she was suicidal at times, had suicidal thoughts. I knew that she'd had a very bad time in the summer of 2019. I I knew there'd been tears. I knew that she'd been in a state of distress. I even actually knew about that conversation she had with the head of HR. But I certainly never realised it was suicidal. And also, when I wrote my article the other day about bullying allegations, we were going to put into the piece about the fact that she'd been very distressed in the summer of 2019 and tears and so on. But we decided not to. Our lawyer advised we take it out on the grounds that this was invading her privacy. The idea that she should be suicidal was genuinely shocking. I didn't know that. I was taken aback. And what were the other moments in the interview that just stopped you in your tracks? Well, the discussion, of course, um, about the colour of the as-yet-unborn Archie's skin. Two things struck me by this. One is the allegation at all, because what exactly was said, who said it, we don't know. But it certainly seems a highly unfortunate remark, which some people will see as racist. Until we know what we've said, I think it's hard to judge whether it was racist. And the other thing is, that they should say it at all. If this was a member of the royal family, if it was a member of Harry's family, to share that in public, to put that out there on the airways, knowing how damaging it's going to be, that's a calculated act of war, really. And what it will do to Harry's relations with his family, I don't know, but it's catastrophic, really. And the other thing is, they say, oh, we're not going to say who it was, because it would be very damaging for them. If I'm being honest, I find that disingenuous. They know that everyone's going to be immediately trying to work out who it was. And they know that perhaps people might actually end up identifying who it was. The damage will be done. So to pretend you're concerned for them, so you're not going to name them, are they being entirely honest there? I'm not sure. I mean, just how damaging do you think those allegations are for the royal family, globally and here in Britain? I think they're hugely damaging because as soon as any person or any institution has the merest whiff of racism 
about them in this current climate, in the era of you know Black Lives Matter, the debate about uh, slavery and the legacy of empire, to have the taint of racism is incredibly damaging for your reputation. And the important thing is not just damaging here in Britain. Well, that that's very important to me. Here we have this multicultural society, and you know we all know how important it is to embrace questions of race and not be tainted by accusations of racism. But also Britain's reputation abroad. If this is how one of my greatest selling points, the royal family, is viewed as a mm. bunch of old racists, but if that's how they're viewed, all our attempts to use the royal family to basically promote Britain's standing abroad are going to be seriously undermined. Yeah, how does this play out across the Commonwealth? Very badly. I mean, there's huge affection for the Queen in the Commonwealth. And of course, we'll note that the one person that Harry and Meghan spoke warmly of uh, was the Queen herself. But yeah, it's not going to go down well within the Commonwealth. And perhaps, you know, one might hope that some of these countries have got such a warm relationship with the Queen, they might consider that when they think about what their reaction to all of this is. But it's not good. It really isn't good. We've already seen the reaction in Australia, where the interview has relaunched calls for the country to become a republic. The former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, asked why it was easier for Harry to leave the monarchy than it is for Australians. It's our country, it's our constitution, um, you know, and our head of state should be an Australian citizen, should be one of us, not the Queen or King of the United Kingdom. So it's, it's a simple patriotic uh, objective to have an Australian citizen as our head of state. And have you heard from you know, people inside the palace? How are they reacting? Funny enough, it was very interesting because in the immediate uh, aftermath of the interview, the shutters were down the palace. People who would normally be quite chatty were on the quiet side, shall we say. But I think they're shocked, they're reeling. It's at the far end of their expectations of how bad it would be. They're all a little kind of fried, I think. And some of them are looking at what Megan said in the interview and perhaps questioning some of the narratives she said, but they know this is damaging and that's why a statement from the palace did not come out overnight on Monday night. The palace did eventually release a statement late on Tuesday afternoon, which read, The whole family is saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan. The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. Whilst some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. Harry, Meghan and Archie will always be much-loved family members. I think they had a form of words pretty much worked out. Maybe the I's had not been dotted, T's had been crossed. And then we were all expecting it and then it didn't come out. And I think that's because the Queen basically wanted to sleep on it because it's very important what they say and they will be judged on it. And perhaps it shows a degree of wisdom not to rush into a response. And well, they certainly haven't rushed. Last week, just before the interview was released, another story a Times exclusive, cast the Sussexes in a different light. It became apparent a couple of weeks ago that there were person, people, 
possibly several people who wanted to discuss what had gone on in the palace. And they wanted to tell the world about how there were these allegations of bullying against the Duchess of Sussex. And everyone's been concentrating on the timing. Everyone's been concentrating on, as they see it, people getting their retaliation first. Yes, the timing is relevant, but it's relevant for this reason. With her victory against the Mail on Sunday and then the Oprah interview, Meghan's been doing a very good job of putting her side of events out there, putting her narrative out there. There are lots of people who've completely bought into the idea that Meghan was a victim, that she and Harry were treated appallingly by the royal family, that Meghan suffered while she was here, that she was possibly even a victim of racism, and that her voice was silenced. And these are people who just want to say, actually, there's another side to this. There's another story. There's a story about how Meghan treated her staff. And also, very interestingly, there's another kind of narrative. And this I've heard from three different people whose judgment I trust, people I know well. And they've all separately said, in various circumstances, that Meghan always wanted rejection. That when she arrived in the royal family, she always cast herself as someone who would be rejected. She cast herself as a victim. And the idea, they suggest, is that so further down the line, she'd be able to say to Harry, look, our life is unbearable. These people are making our life a misery. They don't understand us. They don't appreciate us. They don't want us. And the only way we can resolve this situation is by getting out, leaving the country, and making our life elsewhere. Now, this is a a theory, as it were. It's It's a point of view. But it's a point of view from people who were there at the time. That's so intriguing. It's not a a theory I've heard before. And it's interesting that that's what people on the inside seem to be saying. When they say she was courting rejection from the start, does that mean they think all of this was somehow premeditated? Or do they think that she didn't have the confidence to think she'd fit in? I think there are some who think it was premeditated. I mean, that's, that's a strong, it's a strong accusation. And I'm not saying I advance it myself, but the people who live through it who think that's what happened. Last Wednesday, Valentine's exclusive made the front page of The Times under the headline, Royal Aids Reveal Meghan Bullying Claim Before Interview. At the absolute heart of the story is an email. So we've had all sorts of slightly gossipy stories in the tabloids over the last couple of years about Meghan being difficult. But this has at its heart a fact. And the fact is an email. An email that was sent from one of her closest advisors, a chap called Jason Knauf, an American, interestingly, so mm. doesn't quite fit into the men in grey suits caricature. And he sent an email to his boss, Simon Case, was then William's private secretary, and he's now the cabinet secretary. He sent an email to his boss saying Meghan had been bullying staff. He said that she had driven two PAs out of the household. He said that she was undermining the confidence of a third member of staff. And he said that he was worried that the stress being experienced by Samantha Cohen, who was Harry and Meghan's private secretary. Samantha Cohen is someone Valentine has known for a long time. She is Australian. 
She's incredibly able, a fantastic professional. She has been with the palace for 18 years. She actually left the palace. Her last job was with the Queen, and she left a while back, and she was persuaded by the Queen to come back to be a private secretary to Harry and Meghan after the wedding, to be a safe pair of hands, a sympathetic figure who would embrace their causes and help them make a success of uh, Meghan's arrival as a member of the royal family. And the idea that Sam, who's, you know, a tough person, the idea that Sam should be suffering stress, I was shocked by that. That's the central allegation. Because you know, bullying, there's always a slight case of value judgment about it. One person's bully is another person's demanding boss. And a lot of people have defended Meghan along those lines. What were the allegations? What was she actually accused of doing? Well, the easiest thing to do is to point out the effect of her bullying. First of all, there were two PAs. One PA we didn't really know about. She left very early on in Meghan's time at the palace. The other was a woman called Melissa, who there were tabloid stories about. She left after about six months, and there were stories about her being reduced to tears by Meghan. The idea that people were being reduced to tears by Meghan crops up quite often. She would humiliate people. I've spoken to people who said they were humiliated by her in meetings. The specific details of the bullying haven't been published in order to protect the identities of those involved. But we do have broader descriptions of what staff say they experienced. They would say things like, before having a meeting with Megan, where they knew that Megan would be very cross about something, they would say things like, I feel sick. I'm terrified. There was another time when Megan had tried to contact one of her staff, and this member of staff had tried to ring back, and they knew, they knew a storm was coming. And this member of staff tried to ring back, and Megan wasn't picking up. And she said at the time, I can't stop shaking. It's ridiculous. Now, if that's the effect of what Megan is doing at the time, something's going wrong. Something's going terribly wrong. And to go back to the question of the difference between a bully and a demanding boss, some of these people are still in a psychologically fragile state today. As we were coming up to publication, there were people in tears. I mean, they wanted the story out. Don't get me wrong, they wanted the story out. But there were people in tears. Those are the wounds that have been left by what happened in Kensington Palace. Talk me through a bit of that process of how it got to the point of there being an official complaint and what happened after that. There they are, looking remarkably fresh after such a, a long flight. Uh, Prince Harry and Meghan about to be whisked away from Mascot Airport to Admiralty House on the first day of their Australian tour. In the autumn of 2018, around the time that Harry and Meghan are going off this tour of Australia and New Zealand, and crucially, Fiji, Jason Knauf was meant to be on that tour. He, in fact, broke his collarbone just beforehand and didn't go. Jason Knauf, an American, was the couple's communications secretary. So he's in London. And the second of the PAs is leaving. So one PA left very early on. We don't know much about her. Her name has never appeared in a newspaper. The second PA, Melissa, she's leaving. And it's around this time that Jason Knauf decides to write this email. He thinks the situation has got so bad. He writes the email, goes to Simon Case, his boss, goes to HR. Jason has already had a couple of meetings with HR. And in fact, in his email, 
uh, to Simon Case. He says that the head of HR was taking it very seriously. After that, the head of HR, Sam Carruthers, and the private secretary, Sam Cohen, Prince Harry, and the two Sams have a meeting. And he comes out with a very black look on his face. And some point later, he goes to see Jason in his office. And from what I understand, he begged him to withdraw the complaint. Now, what happens after that is a matter of interpretation. Jason didn't withdraw the complaint. What ended up happening is the following month, November 2018, Jason handed in his notice. He'd had enough. He was off. He stayed around for a few months. I get the impression he didn't have an awful lot to do with Harry and Meghan. And then when William and Harry's household split in early 2019, Jason went to go and work for Prince William. As you say, people will think some of this is subjective. Some people will think this is just a demanding boss. Others have said perhaps this is cultural. Perhaps it's just the American way. And and the way she was behaving would have been perfectly normal in, say, Hollywood. I don't think it's cultural at all. That certainly, it was suggested at the time. Um, I'm told that even Harry, in the very, very early days, when things first started to go wrong, when, when people were getting up, Set about how they were treated. Harry tries to suggest it was cultural differences. But I think that, first of all, there's not one but two Americans in the staff, but also the fact that these wounds are still pretty raw today. I think it means it's more than the cultural differences. It's more than just a demanding boss. And what else did they, did your source tell you about Meghan's time in the palace? What have they made of her public narrative since? As one of them put it to me, in her public declarations, Meghan has talked about you know, the voices of the voiceless and so on. And this source said to me, well, what about the voiceless in your own team? I mean, these people think of Meghan as, I'm afraid, hypocritical. And did they feel voiceless? What happened when they complained? Well, they very much feel voiceless because what happened when they complained was a big, fat nothing. So this complaint, made by Jason Knauf, went to Simon Case, then William's private secretary. Now, the important point about Case is two things. One is he didn't actually have any managerial responsibility for the people mentioned in the complaint. And, of course, we should emphasise the complaint was not by these victims of bullying. It was by Jason, who felt he should speak up on their behalf. Simon Case passed it on to the woman who's in charge of HR for Kensington Palace. And as far as we can tell... Nothing happened. There was no attempt to investigate the claims. There was no attempt to protect these individuals or to make sure that this couldn't happen again. And the point here is they just didn't know what to do. Has anything like this ever arisen before? Well, no. I mean, there are members of the royal family who might have occasionally behaved robustly with staff, yeah. I mean, maybe we might have had tempers lost, yes. But that's different from being a bullying boss. So they didn't know what to do. It was a situation they hadn't encountered before. According to people I've spoken to, their reaction was to try and make it go away. Not to do anything about it, but to make it go away. So that's why the idea that the palace has now launched what they very carefully called a review. It's not an investigation, they say, it's a review. Because the question which needs to be answered is, why was this not done two and a half years ago? Why did you not take it seriously two and a half years ago? As one of my sources put it to me, the men in grey suits who Meghan so hated 
they've got a lot to answer for because all they did was try to protect her. So that's how they see it. What can we expect from Buckingham Palace's review? Do we know how far its remit will extend? I mean, for example, will they decide if the bullying actually took place? Buckingham Palace is saying as little as possible about the scope of the review, about what they'll do, about who will lead it, about what outcomes there might be. But it's very much along the lines of what you said. You feel it's going to be more about the processes of, of, of human resources. We don't think they're going to be looking to blame someone. Someone said to me from the inside, it's not going to be a kangaroo court. But I think there is a debate going on, and I'm not sure it's been resolved yet, about the extent to which they will look at what happened higher up. Who knew about this? What did they do? And if they did nothing, why not? We'll have more on Harry, Meghan and that interview in just a moment. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Last week, Valentine Lowe, the Times Royal Correspondent, broke the story about the Duchess of Sussex being accused of bullying staff. So how did Harry and Meghan respond to the allegations? The Sussex response was interesting. First of all, they did what we knew they'd do, what they always do. They got their lawyers involved. And we had a very strongly worded legal letter from their lawyers denying everything. Right until publication, so this is several days, almost a week from when I first put the allegations to them, a long, long list of allegations. Up until we told them we were publishing, they hadn't come back with a statement. And then when I said, okay, we're publishing tonight, and they said, how long have we got to reply? I said, you've got an hour. 
I mean, it doesn't sound very long, but they had they actually had a week. And they sent a statement, and it was kind of interesting, interesting for, for two reasons. One is, it didn't actually deny anything. But what it did was it called it a smear, and they called it a calculated smear campaign based on misleading and harmful misinformation. They made the point that Oprah was coming up, pointed out that timing, and they said that the Duchess is saddened by this latest attacks on her character. They said she's someone who'd been the target of bullying herself, and she's deeply committed to supporting those who experienced pain and trauma. And she's determined to continue her work building compassion around the world. And, well, people can look at that statement how they like, but I think that the people who claim they were bullied by the Duchess will look at it with a certain scepticism. And, I mean, do they have a point in that have these revelations come to come to light now because of the Oprah interview? Is this an attempt to smear or at least get a, a preemptive retaliation and make people view the interview in a slightly different light? Everything that the Times wrote in that article is a fact. Everything has been checked and double-checked and where possible sourced and double-sourced. It's all absolutely copper-bottomed and we stand by what I wrote. Yes, the timing with Oprah is not a coincidence, but it's because Meghan has driven the narrative and this is just for the tip by some people to say, listen, there's another side to the story. And that's their motivation. And my motivation when I wrote this, apart from thinking, well, it's an interesting story, is that I don't want to portray Megan as a monster. I don't want to say Megan's awful. I just want to say, let's, let's just have a little bit of correction here. Let's have a little touch on the tiller and say it's a bit more complicated. And the idea that Megan was just a victim that the royal family behaved appallingly. It's not the whole truth. There may well be concrete things happened with Meghan in which the royal family behaved badly, the institution behaved badly, maybe even members of staff behaved badly. Maybe there are members of staff who didn't support her in the way she wanted. I think there might be something in that. I don't know, but the the idea that it's a very simplistic narrative that Meghan was the victim and if these people had waited till six months' time to tell the story, any time after Oprah, no one would have cared. Meghan would have imprinted her story on the world with the Oprah interview. And that would be the starting point for everyone. That would be the gospel. Want to know about Meghan's time in the palace? Listen to Oprah. So in that sense, that's why it was important to get this out first. Because just to say, hang on, it's a bit more complicated. Here's another version Here's another truth. And does the interview put a new spin on the allegations of bullying? I mean, if we now know that Meghan's mental health was suffering, might that have had an effect on her behaviour? It's entirely possible. Maybe that manifested itself in her behaviour, her alleged behaviour. I don't know, I'm not a psychologist. But there's another important thing to say. If she says that she was in such a bad state that she asked for help, and spoke to someone very senior within the, within the palace about needing help, and was told no. I, I, I struggle to believe how that could happen, because Harry has spoken very publicly about his own issues with his mental health, about the fact that he's had therapy for quite some years uh, following the death of his mother, and speaking up about your mental health, not being afraid to admit you've got problems, not being afraid to address them and to seek help. So the idea that 
Megan was unable to seek help from whatever was going on. It's frankly baffling, and I'm not quite sure you know, what's going on there, what's the truth of what happened. Do you think, sort of having heard Megan and Harry's narrative, do you think it's sort of making moral correspondence sort of rethink certainly how how they felt they experienced it? You know, does it sort of make sense of some of the things that happened? I think we're all looking back over our histories and trying to work out what happened. I mean, I think we, we're, we're constantly adjusting our histories. I certainly adjusted my history after I, I heard about those bullying allegations and adjusting it again after I heard about Megan's suicidal thoughts. Because that's the one thing, of course, we can't dismiss from what she said in her interview. We'll be going back over this many times before we reach a final truth, if we ever reach a final truth. It's so interesting, isn't it? I wanted to know what response you personally have had from doing the story, because it does feel like this is one of those stories where everybody feels very passionately on one side or the other. One of the interesting things about the reaction is that there have been some critical voices of what I've written, as it were, but they've been hugely, hugely outweighed by the supportive ones by the people who said, we're glad you said this. It's really interesting, really good piece. And I, I'm quite surprised by the imbalance between the two. Really? Now, I think in the United States, that's different. It's a very obvious oppo dump on Meghan Markle. And one of the things she's being accused of in her abuse is emailing staffers early in the morning. So I, I think that's obviously ridiculous on a lot of different levels. In the States, this is far more going to be viewed as a case of, look at the ghastly Brits, look at the ghastly palace, they're getting up Megan again, they're getting their retaliation in first. Don't believe a word they say. And Valentine, you've covered them for three years now. Have your personal views of Megan and Harry changed over that period? God, in the early days, around the time, do you remember, even before they got married, she had embraced this Grenfell kitchen place and was doing stuff with them. Yes. I thought that was brilliant. I thought it was really exciting. I thought she should do it before she was married. It was an unusual thing to do. And she was doing it with a real kind of real attack and dynamism and getting a book published and all that stuff. And I, I thought that was really exciting and different and interesting. And did that view of her change at all? It's complicated because it's it, it's mixed up with what think about Harry and that tour of Oz there was a famous occasion when, when Harry comes to talk to us just informally there's this unwritten rule that you don't report it so if he comes down the plane to have a chat with you we all know that you're not going to report it because otherwise, otherwise you, he'll never do it again and he came down the, the plane and I think I struggle to remember exactly what basically he'd be encouraged to say thanks to us for coming along. I think it'd been a bit grueling. I think there'd been one or two upsets along the way. And I think his office thought it'd go down well if he came down the plane. It was nice to us. So he comes down and he says, thanks very much for coming, not that you were invited. And that went down like a lead balloon. Lots of people complained to the press office that he'd been so rude. And they, they took it up, they told him how bad it had been. So relations, it's, it's tied up with relations with Harry. So it's not just a different view of her, but actually it's about them as a couple and it's about him too and his role. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. 
One of the things that came out of the interview was a giant question mark over some of the narratives that, you know, we know the palace has allowed the press to publish recently. You know, whether it was the idea of Meghan making Kate cry before the wedding or that moment when Archie was presented to the world and we were told that Harry and Meghan didn't want him to be a prince. They wanted him to be a commoner. And now we're told that that was never really a choice. Meghan explicitly in the interview says that the palace would kill stories about other members of the family but didn't really protect them. Did it make you, as a royal correspondent, question the narratives that you hear from palace sources? Well, it's very interesting, Manvin, because you've basically picked up areas where I think people on the inside would challenge what Meghan has said. Who made who cry with Meghan and Kate? Obviously, we're slightly down to who was in the room, Mm. her story against hers. But uh, I I think people are questioning uh, what Meghan says there. And certainly all the narratives one's heard so far are that it was Kate who cried. Did Meghan cry as well? Well, possibly, but certainly it was Kate who cried. Um, But the difficulty there is that Kate doesn't brief. I mean, I've spoken to people close to her and they say that she just doesn't get involved in, she would never try and get her side across in a private dispute like this, certainly not with another member of the family. The prince thing, Archie being a prince, um, there are kind of facts here and there's Megan's view and it all gets very, very complicated, messy and a bit nerdy and geeky. But in a nutshell, Archie was never going to be a prince of birth, but there are rules that say that when the queen dies, Archie would become a prince. And that's just rules. Um, Meghan talked about it in terms of being connected with Archie's security, but the question of security is not a matter for the royal family. It's Scotland Yard and it's the Home Secretary. And what title he gets and what security he gets are simply not connected. And everyone within the palace would say that's wrong. And I think really you've got no reason to question them when they say that. Was there any moment in the interview that made you sort of understand them a bit more? You know, for example, the comments about Archie's skin colour, which, you know, most people would find shocking. If you're hearing things like that, perhaps you do feel like you're being judged differently. You know, maybe you do feel like you're under siege. Has it changed your view of what they were experiencing? I suppose that if that's how you feel, if those are the conversations that have happened, and if, for instance, there were a few articles in the early days which could definitely be considered as possibly racist. So if those are your experiences, first of all, maybe you see everything through that prism, and that colours how you view your whole interaction with both the royal families, the institution, and the media. And therefore, everything's added to that. It's all evidence to support your theory. And maybe your theory isn't wrong, but other people on the outside who've not had the same experience don't see it the same way. But I think they have a bunker mentality. It's them against the world. And actually, I think that's a shame, because the world wasn't always against them. A lot of us, me, 
and many others were excited by Megan at the beginning. We thought she was great. She offered new opportunities, new ideas, new approaches. And it didn't have to go wrong. They didn't have to retreat into this bunker where they thought that everyone was against them. It could have been a cooperation. It could have been working with the royal family, working with the media to actually explore other approaches, other ways of working. But once you regard it as a war, it's all over because it's never going to end happily. And it hasn't ended happily. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, royal correspondent for The Times, Valentine Lowe. You can read more of Valentine's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. We'd like to thank the ITV Hub, Harpo Productions and CBS for the clips of the interview that you heard. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. And sound design was by Carla Patella. If you have a story that you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. <laughs>